and welcome to episode 256 of SMARTS, which, as you know, stands for... Starfleet members adjust to regressive Terran society. Oh, nice one. I am your host, Julia Gulia of Internet Fame, Dash Podcaster. And with me, as always, is Trevor, a.k.a. Rudiger Q Podcaster. Hello. 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 So we don't have any news this week. Oh. No news. What? That's right. That's news. Okay. Not really. <laughs> so let's go straight into our comics of the week. What was your comic of the week? I can't remember. <laughs> I told you this morning, but I can't remember. Red Hood and the Outlaws, right. number 50. That's right. That's right. It was so good. Um, oh, man. There were so many good comics this week. It was really tough to choose. Hellblazer was good. Wonder Woman was, was good. Um, everybody, everybody was good this week. Everybody brought their A game. But this was the final issue of what I'm going to say, this arc or even this team up, because you've got... You've got Artemis parting ways with um, Red Hood there. You've got Bizarro being the king of hell. And you've got Pup Pup going off with <laughs> to help and mentor um, the Joker's daughter, I put in air quotes. So, you know, the, the, the family is split up, as it were. And uh, Jason is heading back to Gotham. But the, the way this issue unfolded was just so nice and heartfelt and... Um, him being a good mentor and looking out for this girl who's been really traumatized and he's trying to set her right. Um, we visit Ma Gunn's house for wayward children and we see how his former stewards are doing. And um, I don't know, everything seems to be all peaceful and calm for the moment. So I don't think they could have left it in a better place, even though poor Bizarro, <laughs> because he killed Trigon, is now um, has to be the the king of hell, or literally all hell will break loose. So, you know, that kind of sucks because I'm sure he misses his buddies and life above Earth. But I don't know. It was just a really nice issue. The art was really good. The f- all I had all the feels while I was reading it, and so that's why it's my comic of the week. Very good. Yeah. So I picked Dark Knight's Death Metal Rise of the New God number one. <laughs> That's uh, a mouthful. Which was right up that my alley because this is all about, um, you know, in the midst of the, what's going on with Death Metal, with the 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 darkest night now fighting Perpetua and mm-hmm. everything sort of crashing down, everything looking bad for everybody in the whole multiverse. This new character appears from the Overvoid, mm-hmm. come from out there in the greater omniverse to sort of like way beyond the chron- blade and the source wall chronicle um the last days of this multiverse um and there's a lot of good good stuff in there where he interacts with different characters like psycho pirate and metron and learns about different things and we see flashes of different continuities and different points in history and um but ultimately it's about um you know the the power of stories and like, oh, that these these stories that, you know, these people in this multiverse are worth remembering and their stories there are unique and powerful, even if their existences end, they'll still live on because their stories will live on. And mm-hmm. it's all that sort of, you know, Graham Morrison y stuff that I that I really like. So mm-hmm. so that's why I picked it. But I also wanted to give honorable mention to Batman Three Jokers number three, which was a really good ending. Mm-hmm. Um it's just that it it felt like it was it was a good ending, but to me it felt like maybe this was like maybe the expectations were, were a little too high. But I kind of expected something a little grander mm-hmm. than just like Joker dangling some like it was all very interesting and very well done. But like Joker dangling a guy over a vat of acid, and Batman, 
you know, ta- the tackles yeah. him and then that's like kind of it. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, I don't know why I expected something a bit more epic. Mm. Um, but it was a small scale story ultimately. It's just, I think that my expectations were calibrated a little differently, but it was definitely very well done. And there's some really interesting revelations at the end and some great character moments. And obviously it was um, beautifully drawn too. So oh God, it was yeah. really good. But I, I, to me, it didn't quite live up to the first couple of issues. And so that's, but I, and I wanted, and because we, I think we picked the first couple of issues I wanted to, to, uh, I think because you have the conclusion and you have a definitive, I don't know, choice made about all the potential storylines that it could have gone and uh, all the potential answers that could have happened, it sort of takes away from the overall feeling of potential because now that you have the concrete answer given to you, it's kind of like, oh, it was that one. Okay. And then you're just done reading it, you know? Um, so I think maybe you're just kind of coming off that high too as yeah. a reader you could know be. um but yeah it was really good that was a good one that was a good read this week too yeah but i want to give that nod to uh rise of the new god because it was a really unique that was so story. crazy yeah that was beautiful and crazy and awesome <laughs> even kind of was mean to the joker in a way that mattered right That's so funny so should we move on to your activity? I'm ready. So this week, because we finished the watching, <laughs> close, we finished watching <laughs> Mobile Suit Gundam Eighth MS Team. Uh-huh. I thought we would rank the members of the <laughs> eponymous Eighth MS Team. Okay? okay. Okay. So we've got Shiro Amada. I should have predicted this one. Okay. Yes, you should have. Yeah. We've got Shiro Amada, mm-hmm. Mikael Ninarich, Karen Joshua, Terry Sanders Jr., and Elador Massis. Okay. You're not putting Aina in this group. Well, she's not a member of the 8th MS team. Fair, but, you know, she was a member of the cast. Anyway, um, okay. I put, oh, this is tough. I really liked everybody. I guess I have to put Shiro at the top because his principles are so good. He learned, but he also grew, but not in a way that he was corrupted by the war that he was in. And I think that speaks so strongly to his character because it's not like he didn't have an arc because there was growth. Does that make sense? He didn't have a great big arc because he didn't really ha- start from a point where he needed to change all that much. He he was a good person and he wound up being a good person. You know, well, really- he did. His arc was that like he was always a good person, but he wanted to. He wanted to. He hated the Zeon. Yeah. Because of the you know the poison gas attack on on yes. side two, and he mm-hmm. wanted to go to Earth and fight them. Yes. Um, but then over the course of the series, he learns that fighting doesn't really solve anything, and that there's. You know, everybody's just people, and it would it'd be better to try to just preserve as much life as possible instead of fighting wars. Like yes. he sort of loses his will to fight, and and you know through falling in love and and mm-hmm. all the other interactions he has with people over the course of the series. So that's really his arc. Like his his character doesn't change, but his entire outlook changes. Right. Like I said, he learns, and and he still remains like the good person that he was, and that's just I really love his story. Um, let's see, who else do I like? Um, you're not counting Kiki either? No, because she's not, again, again not <laughs> she's not a member of the 8th MS Is that next week's activity? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't even think we have enough to fill a roster though, because it was like the, the HMS team and then like three other people. But anyway, um, I choose, let's see, I think I have to pick Karen, because okay. she's got a great big... She doesn't have a, a huge arc, per se. I think none of them do. Yeah. Oh, well. well her, her and Sanders kind of have a similar arc, which yeah. is kind of like, 
loosening up and learning, you know, sort of learning to let other people in. Yes. Kind of like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And like Sanders arc is more, early on is more about like getting over the his his ter- his worry that he's a jinx. He's going to get everybody killed. But yes. then over the course of the series, it's more just kind of like getting, you know, learning getting friendlier, be, I guess. Right. Like learning how to be close to people because that's important. And I think she has that, too. But she's also a really commanding presence. She's strong. She's um, capable. She's competent. She's a really good soldier in terms of like when she disagrees with something, she speaks her piece, but ultimately she'll follow orders, um, which is important because, you know, like in that army setting, you, you have to follow the orders of your commanding officer. And most of the time, like unless they're doing something completely reckless, you will not get thanked for refusing an order. Um, so she's just great. She's just a powerful figure, but also she's got some depth and we got to see a little bit of it too. Um, with her having a backstory where she suffered loss. She was a medical school student. She saved Elidor's life because she had enough knowledge to basically field medic him uh, surgery-wise and save his life when he was he went through a pretty bad mission and needed hospitalization. But his she handled his urgent care and emergency surgery, and it saved him. So I think that's pretty cool. So that's why I have to pick her right under Shiro. And then, let's see, my number three is going to be... Sanders because he has the the whole arc of him be believing that he's a jinx but he also has ultimate faith and she he's super strong but he also instantly values Shiro because he knows what it what guts and courage and value of human life it takes to risk your neck and jump out into space with a half-beaten crummy piece of equipment on the off chance that you might save um a soldier in trouble and he took that risk Shiro I mean and um, Sanders never forgot it because not only does he appreciate his life being saved but he appreciates the kind of character that it takes to pull that kind of move and he has utmost respect for him and he's rooting for him and it's just really cool I like him as a character let's see who else then who's next um you said Elidor and Michael I kind of have to lump them together. Mikel, not Mikel, Michael, yeah, Mikel. So I have to lump them together because they're both two kids on the battlefield with their own concerns. Like Michael, Mikel has BB at home waiting for him, and um, Elador has his music career dreams that are, you know, somewhat being fulfilled or somewhat inching forward. But he's on the battlefield. They both feel like they were drafted. Yeah, it's. Unclear. Like, I, I'm not like sure. why they're there. It must be. In the, I think Elidor was definitely can, drafted. Must be in the canon somewhere about whether there was officially a draft or not. Yeah. Um, not necessarily. There Mikhail, doesn't necessarily Mik- need to have been one for That's people true. that aren't, aren't career soldiers to want to join up in a time of war, though. Like There's Mikhail all sorts of reasons why you would want to do it. Mikel seemed the type that would have enlisted um, a little bit, but he's also mm, super like. I'm not young, sure because all he sure. can think yeah. about is getting back home, back getting back home to BB. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but uh, there's all sorts of reasons why kids sign up in a war without I think he kind of romanticized the war because he's writing all of these romantic letters to her like I've learned so much and he's like on the plane there you know like he doesn't know anything yet um but his arc is is interesting and the the rough mission that they go through where where Elidor gets injured and he really doesn't want to be in the cockpit of the mobile suit um and he's just terrified of the whole thing and he gets really really just borderline slaughtered um it's it's something that shook both of them awake, but 
they're both just kids, you know, and I uh, <laughs> and that other time when they got captured, remember, the two of them, I mean, I just think of them as a piece, especially since they serve a lot of time in the same tank doing the same mission together. I don't really distinguish between the two of them. So they're both going to be tied for number four. How about you? What's your ranking? Yeah, I think I'd have to put Shiro at number one. I mean, he's kind of he's he's very sort of he's kind of the opposite of a Gundam protagonist so in a true. way. Like, so true. Like even though there's even though we've had Gundam protagonists that are very dour and morose mm-hmm. and emo, and then we've had Gundam pilots that are much more chipper and outgoing, usually they all sort of have a dark story. Well, it's not even necessarily from. that they have to have a dark story, but they're they usually their stories don't involve them becoming more optimistic over the course of the story. Like, oh yeah, you know, yeah, that's usually mm-hmm. usually a gun, usually the the story of every main character in a Gundam series is a story of like their disillusionment with like yes the whole process pe- people in people power in gen- yep. and institutions yeah. and humanity in general. Oftentimes, yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, where Shiro gets more optimistic and more um, open minded over yeah. the course of the show. And so in that in that way he's kind of like the, the very much playing against type as a Gundam protagonist. But but I so in that way he kind of seems like he he stands out like he doesn't really belong in a Gundam series. Right. But but I think that's kind of what makes him unique and interesting. Right. So I'd have to put him at number one. I think my ranking would be kind of similar to yours. I think maybe uh, I mean maybe I put Mikel at number two just because I thought that he had he had a aside from Shiro maybe sort of the biggest arc in terms of like growing up and sort of adapting to things over the course of the series coming to terms with different things especially in like the little episode epilogue episode there where where he sort of hit on hard times yeah um then probably karen and sanders and then maybe elador in in fifth but Mm -hmm. i like i like them all it's just that you know elador is clearly not the character that you're supposed to like the most because he's He's kind of even there for he's the most abrasive he's like the the rocker character and a bit of a womanizer you know what I mean? like yeah. he's not the one you're supposed to to like the most but it, it's supposed to be like a ragtag group and so you've got the gruff silent guy and the i'm the, a lover and, not and a the fighter, tough yeah. the tough woman with a heart of gold and the yep. kid mm-hmm. and the the uh, the optimistic rah-rah leader and then like the slacker type right so yep. you kind of want to have that that yeah. variety so yeah. they can't all be you know aspirational characters but yeah, so I think that would be my right. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to say another note, too, because Sanders and Karen both had orders from on high to uh, keep an eye on Shiro and literally snipe him to death if he steps out of line. Like, they both had that order, and both of them refused it in one way or another. Like, Karen was about to execute on it, but she just couldn't bring herself to do it because she knew that he was a good guy, and she just couldn't do it. So she takes the shot, but she deliberately misses. Um, Sanders, what did he do? He just didn't take the shot. He just refused to even try. Um, I I love both of them for that. And it's just, that's pretty cool. That's, I, I just adds to my love of their characters. And yeah, you're right. Mikael had a lot going on, especially with the, um, the short at the end where they find, you know, uh, anyway. Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much because you guys should watch this one. So, yeah. Right. But it's really good. That was a fun activity. Thank you. So now we have two shows this week. We have the season premiere of The Mandalorian and we have oh. episode three of the season of Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> okay, so Mandalor- buckle up, kids. The Mandalorian. This one was chapter nine, The Marshal. So good. Um, so the interesting thing about this episode is that it's probably the largest example so far of them taking a character from... Books. 
the books. I mean, I can't just out other media in general, like because mm-hmm. they haven't. It's not like there's been a bigger example of them plucking a character from the comics or the video games or something. Like the biggest you could say is characters that were in animation, right, and have appeared in li- have appeared in live action. But that's less of a jump because that's one visual medium into another. What was the name of the colonel that cut uh, used the dark saber to cut himself out of the Tie Fighter after uh, the end of season two? Moff Gideon. Yeah, Moff Gideon. Where did he from? Um, where did he come he's from? I thought he character. was in the books. No. Oh, he's a no, he's pure an original, original character. Oh, okay, okay. But if we're talking about someone like Saw Gerrera, who went from the Clone Wars cartoon to appearing in live action in Rogue One, or all the rumors about oh, okay. characters like Bo-Katan or Ahsoka appearing this season on The Mandalorian. Yes. But that's still one TV show into another TV show, albeit animation to live action. Sure. I think it's a bigger jump to go from a, book, a character yeah. from a book mm-hmm. or a comic or whatever into live action. So and it was just a couple of chapters, too. It wasn't even a long... So there was a series of there was a so I was unclear on the details until I heard it uh, elucidated more. So there there yeah. were there was a trilogy of books. This part this part I knew there were a trilogy of books called uh, the Aftermath trilogy, Star Wars Aftermath, that told the story of like the immediate more or mm-hmm. less the immediate aftermath of Return of the Jedi in the new like official canon. And in those books, there was a series of small interludes, not even full chapters, but small interludes that dealt with Boba Fett's armor being picked up by some Jawas. And this guy, Cobb Vanth, who had a backstory which was pretty much identical to what they had in the show, although some of the details and circumstances were a little different, um, about he got the armor off some Jawas and went back to this town to rid it of this mining, um, this group of miners who were really just like a protection racket or criminals or whatever who who were calling themselves like a mining guild. and protect this town as as its marshal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got that character here. Um, it was a few of the details changed, but basically the same character mm-hmm. um, straight out of the novels. And so that lets us we get Boba Fett's armor on screen, and then you know over the course of the episode. There's the whole thing about, you know, the Mandalorian wants the armor back, but then he comes to respect this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't stop him from taking the armor, of course, at the end. But I think it was meant more to be like Vanth kind of didn't realize he didn't really need the armor anymore, you know, because yeah. he already had the people's trust. He'd killed the crate Dragon. He'd brokered truce with the Tusken Raiders. Mm-hmm. He didn't, A lot of he, his threats were allayed He didn't already. need its extra protection, nor right. really would it, nor the sort of extra authority that he felt it gave him because he'd earned that authority for real now, you know? Yes. Although mm-hmm. I thought they could have hit that a little harder, but I think that that was what was implied. Um, but the Mandalorian was like, yeah, sure, I'll take it. <laughs> he was never like, no, you've earned it, you know, which would have yeah. been like an interesting arc for him too. But maybe. That would have been, I think, maybe a little too far because still he is on the beginning of his road to yeah. even becoming more Mandalorian than he already is, well, like which the, is kind of strange. The big, the big brain theory that Star Wars Explained has is that this series, however long it runs, is go- his arc is going to be realizing that being, there a, is Man- more than one well, way. being a Mandalorian is not about like the creed like not showing your face or whatever it's not about the armor or what it's made of or who gets to or whatever right. it's it's about what you do it's your actions that you know a mandalorian yes. is his actions like whether he is on the the, the side of justice where whether he fights for people that need to be fought for right yeah. so i so you're right maybe by the end of the series and maybe this is something we'll see like if this character reappears again at the end of the season or in a later season where he actually does give the armor back to him or gives him new armor or whatever yeah because he's like i was wrong to take this from you before you're 
you know, you're as legit a Mandalorian as I am, right? Because mm-hmm. he wasn't born one either, right? No. He was sort of... But he lives a creed of right. honor. He was, sort of, yeah. he was sort of anointed one by other Mandalorians. And so now he could do the same for Cobb Banth and say, and, you know, you're now a Mandalorian. Here, take this armor back. You've earned it, right? Or right. something like that. Yeah. But, he, you're, but he's not there yet because the theory, you know, the, the, the thinking is that that is sort of his arc over the... Over he's time, He's going to yeah. encounter more Mandalorians or pseudo-Mandalorians like Cobb Banth, like Boba Fett himself, mm-hmm. like Bo-Katan, mm-hmm. like Sabine perhaps. Mm-hmm. And through meeting all these other Mandalorians, because he's had a, probably a very isolated, like the only Mandalorians he's interacted with were like Death Watch, who raised him, and then like the little covert on that planet, right? And they were all like diehard, like fanatical about this one particular credo, it seems, right? Right. But he'll he'll get more sense of how different Mandalorians behaved mm-hmm. and how they go about it and what they believe in and what they fight for. And by the end of it, he'll be changed and he'll maybe he'll like take the helmet off for good or whatever. And he'll be like, I don't need any sort of these trappings to be a Mandalorian, right? right? Um, but then we see what we can only assume is Boba Fett himself at the end of this episode. It's, he's played by Tamora Morrison, heavily scarred. Yeah. Um, which makes sense because, you know, who, who knows how long he's being digested by that Sarlacc pit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose it's possible it is not him. It could be a, a different clone. It could be like Rex or who knows, right? But it's yeah. probably Boba Fett because yeah. I feel like if they reveal it's somebody else, that's going to be a disappointment because yeah. you, you're I making mean, everybody think it's Boba Fett. And not only that, but he was in, huh, interesting. Maybe that's how he escaped the Sarlacc pit because there was something alluded to. The the giant dragon was living in an abandoned, and I put abandoned in air quotes, uh, Sarlacc pit. And yeah, somebody mentioned, oh, there's no such thing as an abandoned Sarlacc pit. And his reply was, it is if you eat the Sarlacc, which kind of crazy, right? Like it puts together a, an image of two ginormous, like super long-lived creatures fighting it out for one scrap of cave. I don't think that has to Wolf. be with Boba Fett, though, because the, the Sarlacc pit that Boba Fett was eaten by was out in the middle of the jungle uh, waste or whatever, wherever Jabba's sail was. But it was still was. on the same pl- planet which is why I'm that's true it was on the same planet well no i mean that crate dragon that's really important got around. that's important because i mean he was kind of without resources so he maybe just kind of got out of there and just made a home there no i think it's more like what it was in the old legend stuff or kind of even what we see the mandalorian do here with the crate dragon where he got swallowed but then you know then luke and everybody else went off sure right and then like an hour later a day later or whatever boba fett is finally able to rig something where he like explodes it from the inside and comes flying out but right. the armor is like blown apart and he's badly burned and he He's unconscious and the Jawas come and scavenge the armor, but he's lying there in the sand for however long until he finally drags himself up and crawls yeah. back to civil. Like, I could see them playing that kind of stuff out yeah, in, yeah. In, in flashbacks. Yeah. Um, but that's the, you know, I've, I'm guessing that that's Boba Fett himself there. And so we'll see more of him as it goes that's on. That's what I'm thinking too. Um, yeah. Which will be, which will be cool. It's and with so all exciting. the rumors still going around that we're going to see, you know, everybody from Ahsoka to Sabine and to Bo-Katan and all these other characters. I really too, so. hope so. My heart is singing at the very idea of it. Oh, that's very exciting. Yes. And um, the Jawas pulled... No, sorry, not the Jawas. Um, the Sand sand People? Well, if you what want to be so- pejorative about it. The tu- the Tusken Raiders. Tusken yes. Raiders, I'm sorry. Um, this, the Tusken Raiders pulled, uh, are pulling the carcass apart and saving its meats for various, I don't know, uh, future meals. Um, but one of them finds a giant, giant ball. And I looked at you like, what, what, what is that? And apparently it's a pearl. Well, it's a pearl that was in one of the video games or something yeah. that they're highly prized. Yeah. You know, worth a fortune or whatever, these pearls, because for obvious reasons, yeah. they're so rare and so hard to, to get <laughs> to one. To get, so. yeah. Oh, crazy. So that guy, that that's, that that's Tuscan Raider is going to be set for life. Set for life. Yeah, he could retire by his own, you know, 
sand. Raid. <laughs> sand. Yes. Patch of sand and just retire. Put an umbrella in there and call it a day. Um, yeah, but it was a really good, oh, so good, really good opening. Guys, the cinematography, unbelievable. So many wide shots. And those take a lot longer than just the close-up shots of the thing because they've got that that beautiful filming cave well, everybody's probably seen this now i don't know if you can call them wide, wide shots like if that. it's just if it's not actually well no scenery. no 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 but that's i mean it may be cg but it still is objectively that's a wide, a shot, wide yeah. shot yeah i was I mean, actually a little there's been so, so much discussion and so many behind the scenes things about the volume since the last season ended yeah because I didn't really know about that during I don't not sure really anybody did when the first season was airing like how they filmed it yeah I think yeah. a lot of that sort no of idea. came out of news stories afterwards but yeah. it was actually a little distracting for me for the first 10 minutes or so of the episode yes. I'm like wait is this the volume or is this a set is this the volume or is this on location <laughs> I know <laughs> a little like, bit. Well, you couldn't do this in the volume nope. because the camera's following him down the street so that's got to be a real place but what if it's like but then after like 10 minutes like I'm sure most of this all the desert stuff was in the volume but you literally can't tell it's, it's crazy so but it was a little distracting yeah. for me in the first but there's no way you could keep that a secret obviously no. and it's cool you want people to know how you did it right um, but it is a little distract kind of like when you understand a lot about how cg is done you're like oh that's clearly cg that's clearly cg i right. couldn't have done that practically you know what i mean like you right. kind of you kind of see it but of course then you get swept up in the story and you don't really think about it anymore but yeah the shots were really beautiful the cinematography continues to be amazing but like this one ramped it up to 11 it was really good so star trek discovery pe- Gee, speaking people, of 11 people of earth yeah so they get to earth and then they discover that it's um not quite what they hoped nope that um that earth is not the home of Starfleet Command or the Federation anymore, that in fact Earth is not even part of the Federation anymore. Mm-hmm. Shortly after the Burren Federation moved its seat of power to somewhere else. And and the one thing I was a little, the one thing I was a little like, wait a minute, like think about it, like, okay, fine, the Federation moved, but wouldn't people, wouldn't somebody on Earth know where they went? Like, wouldn't they have left a forwarding address basically? Like, <laughs> that that's a little hard to believe that they didn't leave word of where they were going well, I'm sure somebody has that information, but maybe nobody really cares because they've siloed themselves off for the last almost century. They've they've protected themselves. They've really been barbaric in terms of rejecting any incomers. Yeah, but by the end of this, discoveries in the good graces with the, the yes. current power structure on Earth. If they had that information, they would have passed it along. It's it. I find it hard. Maybe to not believe. this episode. I find you know? it hard to believe that unless they move, unless Federation move multiple times and mm-hmm. the people on Earth have out of date information, mm-hmm. which would still be interesting to know. And that like, I feel like you would still need that scene in there. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, it turns out they moved to Beta Z. And then mm-hmm. the next episode, we see them go to Beta Z and they're not there anymore either. Obviously, that would get kind of repetitive after a while. But I feel like you needed a scene where somebody's, and this is kind of something we talked about last season too, like, wait a minute, like somebody would have asked this question. Like the story just goes along so fast. But you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> wouldn't Saru have said, Okay, where did they go? Like, right. it's fine if they say, "Where did they go?" Oh, it was so long ago, and it was like things were so chaotic that nobody nobody remembers. Like, okay, fine, mm-hmm. I would accept that. Mm-hmm. But show us somebody asking that question. Yeah. It, it didn't bother me in the moment, but it bothered me a little afterwards. Otherwise, I think it was really well done. Like, it all makes sense. I like they again. I think they struck a good balance where Earth is. I wouldn't say xenophobic. But they're very isolationist. Yes. Right? Yes. But one thing that I think that was a nice touch is when they're like inspection team beams, beams aboard, mm-hmm. they weren't all humans. There was like a yeah. Tellarite in there. Yeah. Which makes sense because there'd been alien races that would have been living on Earth for tens of generations. Yeah. 
by the time of the yeah, burn. Yeah, it's not xenophobia. That's, the, the, you know what yeah. I mean? Like mm-hmm. those people would have thought of Earth as their ancestral home, right? Like yep. there'd probably be Tellarite, Vulcan, Andorian families living on Earth for a thousand years by that point. Yes. So, so it's not that Earth is like turned against all aliens. Mm-hmm. They probably have the population on Earth is maybe only is could could be less than fifty percent human by this t- point, for all we know. But yes. they're Terrans, you know, they're yes. Earthers, mm-hmm. and they don't want anything to do with anybody else because anytime anybody shows up, they're usually just after that sweet, sweet Dalithium. Yeah, right? that's right. The other thing that people were sort of pointing out doesn't make much sense in this episode is the revelation that the Raiders were from Titan, which was cool. And it, people saw, apparently saw it coming like, oh, he's going to be a human under that mask. And like, I didn't see I that didn't coming. I didn't see it coming either. But scientifically speaking, Titan is only like 40 light minutes away from Earth. So like it does doesn't really make much sense that there there could have been some big disaster on Titan. Mm-hmm. Like literally you would send a signal to Titan or Titan would send a signal to Earth and it would get there in 40 minutes. We're not talking about without warp travel, it's impossible to communicate with them. Like right. radio signal would get there in 40 minutes. How is it possible that their society... Their, their infrastructure on Titan has been in tatters for decades mm-hmm. pe- and people on Earth didn't know about it? How is it possible... Like, the two societies, like, it's one thing to close your borders. Yeah. It's another thing that they could be that, it'd be like, it'd be like placing placing a long distance call. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. you would, even if only for self-preservation purposes, you would make it a point to keep tabs on other societies in your own solar system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it does defy belief that they would be that out of touch. So that, that I felt like maybe maybe nobody did the math and realized, oh, they're, they're on another planet. Therefore, without warp travel, it's, no, it would take about 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, but again, that didn't occur to me either till afterwards. Um, but I, but again, it's very, very Star Trekky that oh, it turns out they're they're we have more in common than we thought, and they yeah. have to. And again, it's the theme of the season. Like this is what I said about the pilot. We see it with Book, where he's got this rough and tumble exterior, but it turns out he's got this heart of gold. It's the same with here in this episode with um, with um, Earth. Mm-hmm. Where they get there and they get this like militaristic welcome, and we think, "Oh man, is Earth like this this war zone now?" No, Earth is still a paradise. It's just that they've got some fences up. You know, yeah. it's not as bad as it seems. And again, these raiders, mm-hmm. you know, of course, it's always it's a broader Star Trek theme that you know communication is always possible, and we have yeah. more like than we are differences. But it's definitely the theme of the season, which is like even you know when things seem their worst, mm-hmm. there's there's still good there. You right, know, you just right. even if you have to dig for it a little bit, and it's true with these raiders as well that they're human also. Yeah, they just for this tragedy and yeah. you know they weren't getting any help from earth in fact earth seemed to, Blew them from up. their perspective yeah. was like actively fighting them and so they like they turtled up and now they're running it you know they yeah. but they still need dilithium to power their, their you know their, their lives ex- their exploded um buildings and stuff from the whatever disaster they had there where their research mm-hmm. uh facility exploded and you know destroyed a lot of their infrastructure and and they're able to Discovery is able to barter kind of like a broker kind of a truce between them. And, right. Um, and I thought that also the, the cast was very good. I mean, obviously the cast, you know, the main cast is excellent here as always. But with the two the, actors the, the act, they hired for The them. actress yeah. they had. I mean, with the guy playing the Raider, we saw him really only in like a scene or two at the end, like acting, fully acting with his face. Yeah, um, but he was still communicating pretty yeah. well as, as when. But the actress you know, they had doing the head of the United Earth Defense mm-hmm. Force, she was excellent. Like she projected that very stern, militaristic, no-nonsense demeanor at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it was believable when she softens over the course of the episode when she gets new information. Like, And you have to buy that someone like as, as 
well-trained and is like technically minded as her would open up to this guy and, and be open to negotiation right with that him. was a tough needle to thread but they they wrote that very well and but they it, cast it you really, need really that well. too she because needed, yeah. you need you need to show she is she is the exemplar of this new earth right mm-hmm. like our opinion of of how of, earth of is. how to view this new earth is going to be formed almost entirely by this character mm-hmm. so if she was as she was mean and a hard ass and she didn't grow at all over the course of the episode and wasn't revealed to have any sort really of warmth, bad. Yeah. that would be like, this is the Earth's representative. This is like the one that we're given to to use as an example. Um, but instead, because she still has those Federation values underneath, even if they're no longer part of the Federation, then that speaks well of, you know, the state that Earth is in, even if they've had to, yeah. you know, sort of shore up their borders a little bit. Um, and in amongst the crew, Saru is given... I'm not sure. So I like the scene where Burnham says, you know, no, it's always been you. You're the captain yeah. now. That's fine. But then he comes out and he's got like the four pips on his back. I'm like, wait a minute. Who gave you an official promotion? Like Burnham's below you in rank. She can't promote you. You know what I mean? Like well, I get that there's nobody else there to promote you. But that's not the fact that there's nobody around to give you a promotion is not grounds for a promotion. You know what I mean? I mean, you technically, could, wouldn't it be like a field commission? Like you, you your entire your, team, but your you entire give, team appointed. It's not a him. democracy. No, the I know. Sh- you can't, this whole ship can't get together, together if they're lower rank than yeah. you and give you a promotion. I, I actually had that same thought. I, I like was trying to retcon I like, it, but I like I that know. he's a captain now and that he's got the pips or whatever. But realistically, what would happen is that he would continue to carry the rank of commander, but everyone would just refer to him as captain. Yeah. Which, by naval tradition, is what should have been happening up till now anyway and wasn't. Mm-hmm. Which is that if he's the high, highest ranking officer and he's in command of the bridge, then he's referred to as captain. Yes. Because he is the captain of the ship, even if he does not carry the rank of captain. And yet everybody was still calling him commander, which is not only incorrect, but also is not in in accordance with everything else we've seen in Star Trek. There was even that great scene between Nog and Chief O'Brien in Deep Space Nine, mm. where Nog is an ens- where Nog is a is a cadet or an ensign. I forget where he, he was, was at that ensign. point. Yeah. And and because O'Brien is is an enlisted man, he's a petty officer. He's not. He he's doesn't. He doesn't gonna, carry yeah. a commissioned rank. Nog's like, so wait a minute. You know, if if everybody above me were to get killed in battle, I'd have to be called captain. And O'Brien's like, if 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 you were captain, there'd be nobody else around to call you anything. Right? <laughs> but that's just it. Like whoever yeah. is in command of the bridge is called captain by right. matter of tradition. And they haven't been super consistent with that here. But anyway, it's nice that he's the captain. I'm a little unsure where he gets off giving himself the extra pip, but we'll ignore that. And Burnham is is now made his his first officer, right? Um, which is nice. I like the fact that they have this conversation where they're like. You countermanded my orders and went off half cocked at this your crazy plan. Yeah, you know, could have told me. You were out of line, turning your badge and your gun. Yeah, <laughs> we do things by the book around here. And she's like, "No, I got results, you stupid captain." You know, yeah, like yeah. it's the scene from <laughs> it's this like lethal weapon. Yeah. Um, but they're like, you know, we have to the the trust between us has to be unspoken. Like we have to be able to trust each other implicitly. Right. Um, but she has, you know, they made a lot. It's a little melodramatic, but I think they handled it well. Like, oh, I've changed a lot over mm-hmm. the past year. Like, I've seen things. Like, yeah, you seem pretty much the same to me. I get that she's like a little looser. Well, and she's yeah. playing that well. But I, but if they try to if they try to have a scene where she's like, no, I'll I'll have to torture this guy to get information because that's the kind of life I've had to live for the past year. I'm like, uh, I don't want to see that. You know what I mean? Right, like, right. that's I don't think so. Hopefully, they don't hit that too hard. I think they've struck a good balance so far. It's not that she's had to do terrible things. Right. It's just that she's she's been you know 
what's the, not flying without a leash is not a thing, but she's you know she hasn't she's had anybody. Be, right, she's, she's been, been operating outside the, the command structure. Mm-hmm. She's been she's been freelance basically, right? right? And now she's got to operate within a command structure again. There's people telling her what to do, and yeah. she's got to clear her actions through someone. It's just not what she's used to. And Georgiou it's more, it's more, it's more, nailed it. That conversation with her and Georgiou, um was exactly what you're trying to describe, which is that Georgiou identifies that hey, you've not had anybody giving you orders for the longest time. You've had to be on your own, think on your own feet, and adapt. To to a pretty cruel environment uh, overall. Yeah, but there's there's also a little bit of wishful thinking on Georgiou's part. Where I think Georgiou also hopes that she's become a lot closer to the Michael she knew, who was probably, you know, every, bit every mean, bit as yeah. cruel and vicious as she is, right? Right. So yeah. she's like, oh, Michael's finally becoming more like my universe. Oh, but boy. Probably not yes. true, but it's yeah. kind of, she's seeing what she wants to see, I think, yeah, a little bit. a little, but... Um, but yeah, it's more she's just like wrong. it's more just like a, a like a, a muscle that hasn't been used in a while. Like she's just not yes. used to she's just not used to the command structure. It's not that her values have changed or she's had to do unspeakable things. It's just like she's not used to asking for permission anymore. Like I think yeah. it's hopefully they don't make more of it, you know, than, than that, than that yeah. because I feel like that would be a little melodramatic. It's also great for the discovery crew that she will be there to lend her expertise operating in this But world. I think that's perfect. Like you've got yes. Saru clearly deserves to be the captain. I feel like mm-hmm. if that wasn't where they were going, they shouldn't have been writing the show the way they have because it was clear to everybody that he, does, he was the best person for the job, right? Right. So hopefully they were self the writers were self-aware enough to know they shouldn't have been writing him as the ideal captain if they were then going to have Michael swoop in and take it from him because that would have yes. made the audience dislike Michael, which presumably they don't they Wanna don't want. Do. <laughs> um but yeah, so you've got the more "Quote unquote loose cannony first officer, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's useful. Um, it's important. It's hardly without precedent in Star Trek either. Um, <laughs> That's true. And then you've and then you've got you know the calmer, more wise captain, and mm-hmm. that that works. That works fine. We should also talk about the the new character we were introduced here Adira. to Adira, mm-hmm. um, who is the first um, prominent non non binary character, or well, probably both that and the first such character played by in real life a non-binary yeah, actor exactly right? yeah i guess you could probably look at other i mean there's you could probably look at other star trek characters who are like various alien species and mm-hmm. say well as the you know that exocomp is non-binary but <laughs> what i mean is in real life the actor is non-binary and is playing a character that interestingly enough does not seemingly yet identify that way in this right. episode in this episode all of her pronouns were she right and but will come uh, from interviews it is made clear that they will come to um, identify that who, way. Yeah. And so I think by learning that, but it's interesting because and my pronouns are going to be all, because there's how they refer to themselves here and then there's how I know that they will refer to themselves In and the how future. the actor refers to themselves. So I'm not quite sure which, I think I'll just say they for the sake of, you know, consistency. Okay. They are human, seemingly. Yes. We don't know what full human or not. Again, you know, there's the, Dan- again, we invoke Daniels, right? This far into the future, probably nobody's 100% anything. So maybe sure. she's got a little, they've got a little bit of trill in there. Who knows? Right. Seemingly largely or entirely human, mm-hmm. but still is now host to a trill symbiote, which was a cool twist that the Starfleet Admiral that sent them this message that was like 12, 12 years, years old. old yeah. They get there and a couple, and seemingly for 10 years. Two no, years. That, no, no, no. They died two years two ago. Two years ago. Two years ago, the yes. Admiral I couldn't remember whether it was died. 2 plus 10 or 10 plus 2. Right. So two years ago. They were reported Samuel dead on died in some shuttle or accident yeah. or something, which is interesting because it implies that Starfleet had some sort of presence right. on or around Earth only a couple of years ago. But maybe they had come. You know what I mean? She's uh, the, she the leader now. What? It's worthy I to can't remember, remember her name. It was but Indoye I can't remember. or something like that. Um, yeah. So um, the the leader of the 
Um, United Earth Defense Force. There you go. United Earth Defense Force. Is there an acronym that I need to know? Okay. Uh, UEV. UEV. Okay. The leader of UEV um, said explicitly that uh, Starfleet hasn't been on there since almost 100 years. And... Um, Right, so what was this Trill Admiral doing there two right. years ago? Maybe yeah, that's right. the mystery, The Trill guess, Admiral, but. right, because they were, that was their job, but there was no federation to speak of. Does that make sense? Like, that's kind of like, well, I mean, I'm an architect, but I'm retired. You know, the, that kind of I guess of they could thing. have been retired, sure. but then how, why were they flying around and getting in shuttle? I don't know. Because I feel I like think, there's more of a story there. I, mean, I if, know, if and if we're going to get it, got, too. If Earth has got this closed border policy and, there's no long, and they're no longer part of the federation, there's no reason to star, for Starfleet to have any kind of official presence there. So I think there is no. some kind of story. Maybe this person was on their way to Earth for some important mission or was some carrying some important information and their and their death wasn't actually an accident. Like, I think there's yeah, more of I a story. I think so. There. I'm sure that their death was not a real accident. But I think also that, um, just to put, allay your fears, I don't think that Starfleet had a presence on Earth, but I think that there are definitely people out there who still believe in the Starfleet ideals and are trying to connect to one another to build it back up. Yeah, but a currently serving ranking Starfleet, like an admiral, like with Starfleet being as title. diminished as they seem it's to like be, an admiral's a big like deal. It's like you call the president, Mr. President, for the rest of his days, whether or not uh, he's in office. That wasn't the sense that I got. Like the, this person was not just hanging out on Earth in their retirement. They were actively sending I out know. signals they to were other Starfleet up, officers. But that's what I'm telling you. I think they were on a like a one person mission trying to get Starfleet kind we'll of see. connected up We'll see. I think there's more of a together. story there. It's just that Adira right. doesn't know the story because... I'm not even sure that um, the UEV uh, leader knows the story. You know what well, I mean? They, like they, they almost they don't, certainly don't know right. the story. because They just know that the Although they did have a record of this person it. and how they died and who they were. So they at least knew that the person was on I'm Earth. I'm sure they have a record of everybody on Earth. Yeah. You know? But Adira got the symbiont, but because of the vagaries of like human trill biology is not able to fully access all the memories the memories yeah um not all of them anyway but she's a whiz at engineering uh, i'm gonna i'm sorry i'm still kind of attached well, to the I think that's probably because, because they she, have yeah, i'm the sorry if I, I apologize in advance if i say she it's just that because everybody in the episode called them that that's just exactly where in, my brain in this goes. episode i'm still thinking in she turns as soon as those pronouns change in the i know i just don't trust myself to to, to make that change when it happens if i get too used to it so i'm t- <laughs> she, trying to do it now, to say they now. okay good um <laughs> But, um, yes, but I'm assuming that they, they could be a prodigy, like a Wesley-style prodigy. But I assume, I'm like, this seems a little too Wesley-esque, like a little too, like a little too Mary Sue, kind of. But then at the end, when we learn that they've got a Trillstein band, I'm like, oh, that's why they were so good at everything. It's right. because they've got, like, many, many lifetimes worth of experience there. Right. So who knows what what the ratio is of Adira's experience versus the symbionts experience. But I assume it's some sort of thing where... They have the experience and like a lot of the skills of the symbiont, but they're not. This seems like they're not able to access specific episodic memory, which mm-hmm. is a thing that mm-hmm. can happen because that also happens in real life with various kinds of amnesia and, and brain injuries and stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe the symbiont was damaged in the explosion, was injured, yeah, and has like whatever the symbiont equivalent of amnesia is, right? Uh, that's also potentially true, but we won't find out until I don't know. Stamets has a once over, I guess. I don't know. So, but it's interesting. So this character. Um, wait, Stamets? Oh, wait, no. Which one's the doctor? Crap. Paul Stamets is the engineer. Culver. Culver. Yes, that's who I meant. <laughs> but uh, but this character is going to stay on Discovery because they were hoping they were just they were kind of like not infiltrating, but they were kind of like hanging out in yeah. the in the defense force, so good. hoping that somebody from the Federation would show up so that they could fulfill whatever thing they were trying to do as an admiral, which they don't really remember. Fully remember, but there's, but there's some important. there are traces there. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So from the from the blurb of the next episode, it looks like they go to the Trill homeworld, which makes sense because they're going to go to those weird, presumably going to go to those weird monks in the slime caves yeah. and, uh, and try to get some information. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, like this is going to be the next stop. Right, because Discovery is not actually in a position. They barely know what a Trill I- is well, when you think about the timeline. So, so I saw people on Reddit yeah. talking about this. Like, we didn't meet a Trill until... T, that one TNG, TNG episode yeah. where they were obviously very different than the Trill as they were later established in Deep, in Space, Deep Space Nine, Nine. But it's still technically canon. Right. Um, now what, The idea was similar. Now in, but it, the thing is in TNG, the Enterprise crew was shocked to learn of the existence of the symbiont. That was not known even though... Right. That, even though they were familiar with the Trill species, they did not know that about them. Right. Which seems... Which is like, oh, maybe they had only made first contact with the trail species like right. a few years ago or something. And like, but <laughs> then in Deep Space Nine, Dax made reference to one of her past hosts like a hundred years earlier having had spent a significant amount of time on Earth. Yes. So But they probably didn't know. Like I mean the Earth the Earth people probably didn't know that there was a symbiote living well, inside but, her but that host. but that's it. It just seems Exactly. It's, I mean it's that's like, not it just seems it seems uh, it seems unlikely that you could have close relations with the trill species for over a century and that they could be good good standing members in the federation and you would be and you would not know this very important thing about the society that their entire society is kind of based on yeah, is stru- is structured yeah. around, right? It'd be like being hanging out with the Vulcans for a hundred well, see here's the thing. It's not without precedent because they hung out with the Vulcans for, for like for like two hundred years, and Kirk still yeah. had no idea what Ponfar was. Like it, like Spock that's was true. like, "Oh, we don't discuss it with outsiders." But that's a little different because that only comes up every few years, and they are very private. They keep they go off and they do the right. Thing. I mean, they come it's back. not a mating Can ritual. I request this is, leave. This is, right. This is like, like literally like wait a minute. You've been part thing. of the Federation. No doctor has ever scanned you. Like you would see the symbiont in there. It really does defy belief. But that's not the Discovery writer's problem. That's a problem. That the TNG and Deep Space Nine writers created, Discovery was playing nice with canon. Yes, by saying by but like oh, they knew they knew it's like they knew what a trill was, but then Saru had to look up the database. Yeah. from the glowy orb of the glowy red yes. sphere of death from last season, which had Starfleet and Federation data from the future, their future. Right. That said, oh, here's more stuff that we know about right. trail biology. That's where they learned about the symbiont. Future? That's not where it was. That the the glowy orb thing collected all the known universe up until that point, and the control was trying to use all of that data to make a worse future. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that glowy right. orb okay. thing was interacting with a whole bunch of species. They knew about the Borg. They knew the about the, everything. The sphere data wasn't wasn't from the, f- no. the future. The no, sphere data the sphere didn't... was a giant sentient sphere that wandered I... through the universe right. through the stars. I remember I mean, that. But why did I think that the da- why did I think that the data though. came back from the future just like Michael's mother came back from the future? No. No. Anyway, regardless, it has all this information that Starfleet present day Starfleet was not privy to. Right. So our crew on the Discovery knew what a trill was, but had to look in the the database to learn about the symbionts, which is in keeping with canon. I mean, that's great. That's so they, yeah, because they, they didn't know what to, they didn't know, yeah. and so they looked which it is up good to because learn, and they, there you go. Because you need to impart that to the audience too, because you can't yeah. really assume that the audience knows what a remembers what symbiont that is, is yeah. and what all that is. Well, not just remembers. You right. can't assume that they, if you're watching this has seen Deep Space Nine. Right. So exactly. you've got to make it. You've got to make it clear to the audience, and it allows them to give a bit of exposition because the people on the ship wouldn't know what what. A and symbiont they're about to visit either. Trill, I'm sure. So well, yeah. Maybe. So because they, they need access to are a they within 
they're, uh, they're, they're not... within range of everything because they've got the spore drive. That's they, true. They, yeah. went from wherever so the he- silly, yes. they went from wherever the heck they, they were <laughs> yeah. on the fringes of what used to be the Federation to the heart of the Federation in Earth in five seconds with the spore drive. Yeah. So the problem, like they could get to wherever the Federation is in two seconds. The problem is they don't know where to go. Right. It's like Battlestar Galactica where theoretically you could jump to anywhere, but you're limited by knowing, having enough information about where you want to go. So you don't jump into the middle of a star right. or, you know, let alone knowing what solar system has the thing you want to get to, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it was a really it's good episode. a very good episode. It's a really nice introduction for Adira's character. Um, I'm looking forward to learning more about her slash future them. <laughs> um, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes because now they have uh, a peaceful established relationship with earth which is going to p- come in handy and is already wonderful because they got to see the tree and that was a very nice episode jonathan frakes is such a good director he's so great um and um it's just it's a really good story and i love it i love that it was star trek being star trek which is so nice yeah so are we done mm-hmm. okay so if you want to reach out we have an email address if I can remember what it is no i'm kidding mailbag at smartspodcast.com our twitter handle is at smartspodcast um our Facebook is facebook.com slash smartspodcast. And let's see, our website is www.smartspodcast.com. How about a funny sound for us? I don't have one. How about, hey, oh. <laughs>